Let me tell you a story. It's no ordinary tale. No, it's the ordinary, from which every other story hails. It's the story of God. It's the story of history, and I'm not the author, no. The author is a glorious mystery. See, long before he would put his pen to the paper, long before there was time, or before there was matter, he was there all alone. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, everlasting in existence, completely satisfied, needing absolutely nothing. He was happy in himself and his joy was overflowing. The Son in the arms of his holy, righteous Father, the Spirit overshadowing, all glorifying one another. So why would this God even bother to create the fountain of all happiness? Can you improve upon this state? Well, the joy within himself welling up at such capacity was so full it must be shared with a glorious society. So the mighty author, quill in hand, to share his infinite mind, his love, his joy, sat down to write his Once Upon a Time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made all things to reflect his beauty and his worth. Mountains, rivers, oceans, trees, all gladly testifying. Endless stars and galaxies declare his glory shining. He made it all and it was good. And to culminate his work, he fashioned man and breathed to life his special ball of dirt. Man came to life with blinking eyes and was welcomed by God's face. They walked with him every day and night. There was peace and no such thing as shame. God said, be fruitful, fill the earth, and eat from any tree, except for this one, because if you do, you'll surely fall from me. Now why do this and give this choice? Because he is writing a story, and he's about to show the whole world the fullness of his glory. Conflict enters early on in the script with a snake in the garden doing what he does best, running his lip. Flashback to when this evil was created. He was an angel of heaven who fell when his head got inflated. Banished from God and from his endless mercy, he came down to earth to tempt us with the unworthy. So there in the garden on an ordinary day, he came to the woman and said, did God really say that you should not eat from every tree in the garden? He must not want your happiness or you'd have total freedom. So pridefully they listened, sinfully they took, and scorned their creator as they ate forbidden fruit. Injustice, my friends, this is injustice. That God should be seen and then treated as a nothing. That man should completely forfeit his joy and dig for fleeting pleasures in the gutters of this world. Fallen now is all mankind and sure to face his judgment. A world of pain, of toil and strain and hell forever after. But God would make a promise to preserve himself a people. And through the brokenness of man, oh, could there shine a hero? The plot line continues, some character development, all supporting actors, all fantastic as embellishment. Noah found favor in God's holy sight, and when God sent the floods, he mercifully preserved his life. We come to Abraham, and God made him a covenant. He said, I will bless you, make your offspring abundant. To Isaac and to Jacob, God would come and do the same, and though many dangers came to threaten his perfect plan, the story would go on with the author's full control, and he would lead his people everywhere that they should go. Flash forward now, 400 years, in Egypt there's a Pharaoh who doesn't like God's people growing numerous in freedom. He made them slaves, but God came down and chose his servant Moses, a burning bush, a call to go. His presence was his promise. Moses, tell that Pharaoh now to let my people go so they can freely worship me in the place that I will show. Plagues numerous, God will prove that he is the I am, that Pharaoh's rule is like a pawn in his glorious hand. The waters part, the millions leave to follow their great savior. He guided them, provided for them, though they were so ungrateful. At Sinai, God gave the law so perfect and so pure. His people soon discovered, though, they could not obey these rules. They tried, they failed, they tried, they failed, compelled to live in sin. They'd bow to worship idols and they'd bow to God again. They said to God, give us a king and that will make things better. God, their rightful king, assured them this would be a fetter. 
They insisted God relented, gave to them their kings. Some were good, led them to him, some brought idolatry. Then came the prophets, turn back to God. Sometimes the people listened, but mostly they just gave a nod because they all wanted to be him. God will not wink at your sin, the prophets would all say. The people rose to eat and drink, they left to go and play. God finally seemed to have enough and brought a blaring quiet. The prophets ceased, the people waited 400 years of silence. Enter our protagonist, mostly unannounced. The plot is quickly rising now. Who is this guy? Nobody really knows. He's meek, he's humble, unordinary hero. But the craziest thing about this character is, well, unlike the other characters, this is the author himself. His name was Jesus. He was born of a virgin. Fully God, he was perfect. Fully man, he was learning. Different from all the others, but tempted just the same in every single way we are, yet without a single sin. He made the lame to jump and he caused the blind to see. And unlike the religious leaders, he had some real authority because he came from on high and he came to redeem, not to be served, but to serve his haters and enemies. He loved, he gave, showed us the heart of the author, claimed no glory for himself because he came from his father and we hated him for it because we wanted to be God. Despised and rejected, we esteemed him not. Conflict escalating now, it starts with a betrayal. Judas whores his eternal Lord for 30 pieces of silver. A final meal of prayer and then they head into the garden where Jesus sweat with drops of blood preparing for our pardon. The soldiers took the Lord away and led him to a trial. Are you the son of God? They say I am, there's no denying. Except of course for his disciples who left their Lord in fear. Jesus looked up to the sky, he was all alone from here. They led him to the praetorium and then they began to beat him. Who hit you? They would shout and say, oh father, please forgive him. They made his back a bloody mess. They whipped him till he lost his breath. They threw the cross upon his wounds, the weight of sin, 300 pounds. The great eternal Lord of all, the author of all things, now like a lamb to the slaughter. Would this be his defeat? They nailed him to the rugged cross. They shouted out, where is your God? He said, have you forsaken me? He takes a breath, his final three. It is finished. The Savior's cry. And then he bowed his head. The author of life, the Lord of all, the Son of God, is dead. They laid his body in a tomb. Then everything was quiet as God's people find themselves again in everlasting silence. Two days pass. On the second morning after Jesus died, Mary went to the tomb to take a look inside. And when she arrived, she was met by an angel. She fell to the ground, but he said, there's no danger. This Jesus, Jesus, is he the one you seek? Mary, he is not here. He is risen indeed. Climax is true. Every good story has one. That part where you feel a slight shift of momentum. Mary sprints to go tell the other disciples, the Lord, he's alive. He's alive like he promised. Peter and John go to see for themselves, but there's nothing there. Perhaps he truly lives. Then Jesus' words came flashing to mind. They will kill the Son of Man, but after three days, he will rise. Momentum is surely building now. The enemy is limping. Jesus finds the 12, and then he gives to them the mission. All authority is mine, all in heaven and on earth. Go and tell them I'm alive. Go and tell the whole wide world, and don't get slack. I'm coming.
coming back. Acts now, the church is born, the Holy Spirit given. The news of Jesus like the most contagious sickness spreading. Thousands saved, a mighty wind is blowing through the region. The promise God gave to Abraham, we're finally starting to see it. Repentance and forgiveness preached all in the name of Jesus. Sinners and saints alike proclaim our God has come to save us. The Gentiles hear the story and the news is blowing up. The plan is working, gospel spreading from Asia to Africa. Martyrs laying down their lives because they know this story's true. It's a story like no other. It's a movement you cannot undo. Constantine tried to slow it down and turn it into steeples, but an angry monk from Germany wrote some holy gospel thesis. It spread like fire and then it came to America by sail. And here we are, the 21st century, because the gospel cannot fail. It's the greatest story that's ever been told by the greatest author the world has ever known. But there is some still left to go. Yes, there is some still left to go. See, go was the command to every tribe and nation to carry this great story to this dying generation because when this gospel finally spreads across the whole of earth we're going to hear a trumpet sound and Jesus will return heaven will be opened and a white horse shall appear and the one who sits upon it all his enemies shall fear his eyes will be like fire and his purpose will be glory justice for all evil life for all who love this story He'll come to judge the quick, the dead, and all who trod this world. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Death and Hades he will throw into the lake of fire, and Satan too, that serpent foe, that coward, that old liar. The church will rise, surround the throne, and clothed in glory his. With every tribe and tongue, we will worship him, singing, Worthy, worthy is the Lamb, the Lamb who has been slain. Blessing and honor, glory and power forever to his name, and for ages and ages we will sing the praises of our God and King. It's the greatest story that's ever been told by the greatest author the world has ever known. Yeah, the bad guys lose, the good guys win. Jesus is Lord of all the end. Amen. The story of God. What an effective way to communicate what we've been trying to talk about for the last several weeks, huh? I, uh, I think it's important for us to have done what we've been attempting to do. And that's look at the story of God from beginning to end. What is God doing? What does he want? And how does he get what he wants, right? And, and we have tried over the last three weeks and now on the fourth week to take a comprehensive look, which is difficult to do in a half an hour each week, at what the Bible says from beginning to end about who God is and what he's doing and how he has saved us and what his end game is, the kingdom of God. Amen. And so tonight, we have an opportunity to talk about the last piece in this series, and that's the consummation of the kingdom of God. The consummation of the kingdom of God. What does it look like when it's consummated? Mike talked last week about the fact that Jesus came, and he died, and he rose again, and the kingdom of God began, and the all the things and all the benefits that go along with the death and the resurrection, the gospel of Jesus Christ 
all the benefits and all the things that go along with the fact that God became man and saved us and began the kingdom of God already in this age, all of those benefits have, have happened and are real, but yet they're not yet. Does that make sense? They are right now, but not yet. And that's what we talked about a little bit last week. And there is coming a day where the glory of God, where the kingdom of God will be consummated and Jesus comes back, amen? And that's our hope. I'm gonna start with our primary text tonight, which is in Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. And I am going to probably skip all over the Bible tonight and I will do my best to not move too quickly um, to take a look at different things in the scriptures as we try to approach this topic. But let's read the passage tonight that's going to be our primary text, and that's Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants and the prophets and saints. And those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Let's pray. God, we just thank you tonight for who you are, for what you're doing, uh, for what is to come. We thank you for the story of God. Not just a story, but your truth that's been revealed to us. We are so grateful and you are so worthy tonight. Help us to draw close to you in your word. Motivate us, inspire us, change us. Help us to understand you a little better, God. We pray that you would illuminate your scripture to us tonight, that you would somehow light something up in our hearts and in our minds that enables us to understand what you're saying more than we ever have. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So the consummation of the kingdom of God. It, this is an interesting topic because we recognize that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the kingdom of God began. And we see... Um, we see in our salvation and, and in his death and in his resurrection something that can happen and that has happened in our lives that is remarkable. And we recognize that there's nothing we can do, as Mike talked about, that, that can add to that, that can, that can benefit us because he has done it, amen? You just heard it in that video. He, he died on the cross. He, he said, it is finished, and he rose again enabling us to now have access to God where we had been separated because of sin, because of death, because sin came into the world and had separated us from God. God had in his great plan and in his great wisdom a way for us to get back to him and to be redeemed to him as a people and to be with him. And we see that he has done that for us in the cross and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet, things don't seem right yet, do they? I mean, we see still a fallen world, don't we? We see still difficulty and tragedy and injustice. We, uh, 
I took Sophia, my daughter, um, and my wife. We went down to New York City this weekend. We just got back for Sophie's 13th birthday, which was in May, but we got the tickets for now, um, to go see Wicked on Broadway. Anybody ever see that? Really good. I'm not much of a Broadway guy, but it was, it was pretty awesome. So we went down to New York, and we spent some time in Manhattan, and part of the day Saturday in the morning, we took the subway over to, uh, down to the 9-11 Memorial. And I'd been there before, and no matter how many times I go, you walk onto that ground, and you see the, the huge holes in the ground that are now fountains with names all around them where those two buildings stood. And it's a heavy place. You can't help but feel heavy. You can't help but feel the awe of just great tragedy and loss. I don't know how many of you have been there. You think of that incredible injustice. It's, it's interesting. I think of that because I, I, obviously we all remember where we were when that happened. And uh, Sophia was about three months old. So I know it was 13 years ago because of how old she is. And I'll never forget that morning, waking up and turning on the TV and seeing the, the tower on fire and then seeing the second plane hit and thinking, uh, what in the world is going on? And then as I'm watching the news, the reports start to come across and another plane went into the Pentagon. And then another plane went down in Pennsylvania. I don't know how many of you felt the kind of panic that I did or the, or the kind of, oh my goodness, we're, we're under attack. Like, what, what, what's the deal? What's the next thing that's going to happen? September 11, 2001, the attacks killed almost 3,000 people. And obviously, less importantly, caused at least $10 billion worth of damage. 246 on the four planes, none survived. 2,606 lives lost in New York City in the towers and on the ground. 125 people in the Pentagon. Nearly all the victims were civilians, except for the 55 military personnel that were killed at the Pentagon. Just awful tragedy and injustice. As we've been watching the news recently, this new terrorist group, ISIS, watching the, the genocide of Christians in Iraq. Thousands of people at the top of a mountain running from this group, starving and dying from heat exhaustion and lack of water. People being beheaded. You think the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God. Where is the kingdom of God that, that was spoke of? The kingdom of God that John the Baptist preached. The kingdom of God that Jesus preached as he walked the earth. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And we have seen the amazing beginnings, the reality of the kingdom of God that's in our midst. Yet it's not yet. Something's still not right. Sin is still prevalent in our world. Injustice is still prevalent in our world. Yet the word of God tells us, as we see in Revelation chapter 11, that he's going to make everything right. 
He is going to come again and set it all straight. The consummation of everything that's already happened in the rescue plan and in the gospel of Jesus Christ, everything that is already true, everything that is already real about the fact that he has conquered sin, his death paid it all, it is finished, is real, it is already, and at the same time it's not yet, in the consummation of God's plan when he returns and makes it all right again is yet to happen and is our hope, amen? As a young special victims prosecutor, probably it's got to be about five years ago now, I'll never forget one of the first cases that came into my office that I couldn't do anything about. Those are the ones you remember. And this woman came to my office and her husband had been arrested for kidnapping. It was a domestic violence case, and a friend had encouraged her to go forward to the police. Somehow the strength of this friend enabled her to make a report to the police that, as often happens in domestic violence cases, she immediately regretted. And I got her in my office, and I began to talk to her about what we were going to do with the case. And, and as she sat in my office, and I began to speak with her about what had happened to her and what her husband had been doing to her for years, I saw a woman who was so beaten, so, uh, so destroyed, so completely incapable um, of doing anything apart from this man that she began to actually physically get ill in my office as I talked to her about how we would go forward. began to realize that this was um, something that was going to be incredibly difficult, and I'll never forget this case and the great injustice of this case as I've had thousands of these at this point. Um, as this woman began to describe for me how her husband, uh, when she disobeys him or acts in a manner that would be unpleasant or uh, unapproved by him, puts her in a box. He had a box that he built that we recovered from his house. It looked like a coffin. It was about the size of a human body, and it was probably about this deep, open in the backside, and he would have her lay down, and he would put the box over top of her. It would pinch her wrist down, and it had just enough right here for her to continue to breathe. And he would put her in the box for hours at a time and lay on top of her with a box spring and a mattress and watch TV or leave the house. And she was unable to get out from under it. The way that it came to us is her little boy went to his real dad's house and said, do you put mommy in a box too? One of those types of cases that you never forget. And I remember sitting with her and speaking to her about how we were going to hold him accountable and how she had to go forward and I could see the tables begin to turn where I was losing her. And, and I wasn't going to be able to get her to a place where she could ever communicate this to anybody other than me in the privacy of my office. And I'll never forget the day when I stood in the courtroom because now not only was she no longer communicating the truth to me, she was, had turned it around and now it wasn't his fault and she wanted to be there and this was something they did um, that was not... A crime. She was a willing participant. It was now her recantation, obvious for obvious reasons. I'll never forget standing in a courtroom and having to dismiss the case as this evil man, or this man full of evil, looked at me and smiled, because he knew there was nothing I could do about it, and he was going to walk out. And that was one of the more impacting cases for me because there's nothing I could do. There was nothing the criminal justice system, there was nothing the government, there was nothing the police, there was nothing the DA's office 
could do to help this woman and to hold this man accountable. And, and as I think of these moments in life, as I think of the great evil and injustice and sin that's in our world, as each of us see it every day, and I see it often in my job in some of the worst ways, I recognize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer not the criminal justice system, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer, and there is coming a day when he will make all things right. Amen? The consummation of the kingdom of God. He died for sin. He paid the price, and now he is coming again, and he will reign and he will rule. Amen? We clearly see laid out in Scripture that the kingdom of God has come and, and, and is yet to come. And so I want to take a look at that. If you look at Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus is speaking of the kingdom of God. And as he's speaking about the kingdom of God, the Pharisees are speaking to him. And, and uh, if you turn there in Luke 17, 20 through 21, it says this. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And what we see as Jesus is talking to the Pharisees is, is Israel had been waiting for this moment, right? Israel knew about the sin of the world. The Old Testament, as, as, it, as it plays into the story of God in the New Testament, gives us context for the reality that sin has devastated our world, that sin in the fall of man has destroyed and, and caused sickness and disease and injustice. And Jesus and the Israelites are waiting for the kingdom of God, so they're inquiring of Jesus, and he's, he's, in, he's letting them know that it's not going to come in the way that you think. It's not going to come in the way that you are going to observe this thing. The kingdom of God is coming in a way that's a mystery, that's unknown to you. And hey, by the way, it's in your midst. And when Jesus says to the Pharisees that the kingdom of God is in your midst, he's speaking of himself. He's not saying to them this, the, the, the kingdom of God is in their hearts because they've rejected him. What he's saying in, in, in the best translation of that passage is that the kingdom of God is in your midst, meaning Jesus. is the beginning. The God who became man, fully man and fully God, comes to earth to live the life that none of us could live, to live a sinless life, and to die in our place as our substitute so that we don't have to. And Jesus begins to tell them, it's not going to come in the way that you think. Jesus is telling them that the kingdom of God's in their midst because he's in their midst. And, and we see Jesus often, particularly in Matthew 13, and you don't have to turn there, but there's a list of parables in Matthew 13 where Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. And see, in their minds, they're waiting for, what, the kingdom of God to come in such a way that, that Rome is eradicated and there's a military coup and they're, they're set free and they're, and they're now ruling, God is now ruling and reigning over the earth in such a way that they escape the tyranny of Rome, right? That's, the, that's where their minds are at this moment. And Jesus is letting them know, this is so much bigger than you and Rome, right? This is so much bigger than just Israel. This is so much bigger than just the tyranny that you're living under at this moment. The kingdom of God is coming in a particular way that's, that's a mystery. He says in Matthew 13, it's like, it's like a mustard seed, right? Small seed. Jesus 
has come. The kingdom of God has begun like a mustard seed that's going to grow and become a great, huge tree. The kingdom of God is already, but it's not yet. The kingdom of God is real. It exists. It is finished. The work is completed as a mustard seed, but it's not yet. The culmination, the consummation of the kingdom of God is yet to come as we see that picture in Revelation. The kingdom of God came like a mustard seed, not a military coup, right? Scripture is unmistakably clear that the kingdom of God or that the kingdom program is inextricably tied to Jesus. The kingdom of God, Jesus, all of the Old Testament looks to him. All of the New Testament looks back to him. Everything in the Old Testament was a type, was a symbol, was an example of what Jesus was going to do. And it is finished and it is done. And now there's coming a day where he will come again and and be the consummation of everything that's finished. Jesus' death and resurrection brings the kingdom of God in the present. But the consummation is yet to come. There is coming a day when Jesus will return and all the realities of his kingdom will be consummated. Take a look at verse 15 in Revelation chapter 11. Then the seventh angel blew the trumpet and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. We see Jesus coming, and if you could turn with me to Isaiah, I want to run to a couple other passages that explain this for us. If you go to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, and take a look at this. Isaiah prophesies of this time when the consummation of the kingdom happens. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's coming a day. His kingdom will never end. He will reign forever and ever. He will make all things right. Amen? Look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. And I can read it for you if you can't turn there that quick. Daniel 2, 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Amen? If you look at this passage in Revelation chapter 11, the kingdom of God, when it comes, swallows up the kingdom of man. Amen? The rule and reign of nations and kings is swallowed up by the reign of Jesus Christ. There's coming a day when he comes, makes all things right, and he takes over all the reign and the rule of man and nations that would set up against him are gone, are swallowed up in the kingdom of God as he consummates everything that's already happened in the gospel. Amen? That's good news. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory 
and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As we see, this isn't fulfilled in the present church, but this is only fulfilled through the eternal, universal reign of Jesus Christ. Amen? So it's not in this age that we labor and that we struggle. As Jesus has come and saved us already, as we're rescued from our sin through the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we still live in an age where sin abounds, where, where injustice is, is there, but there comes a time when Jesus reigns forever. His universal reign is the fulfillment of these prophecies we see in the Old Testament. We see in verse 16, at this moment, look at this picture in Revelation. I love these pictures of Jesus in Revelation because you see him as he is. You see him ruling and reigning. You see him in control. The implications of this, as we'll push them down as we talk about this a little bit more over the next couple minutes, are huge for us and in our lives. To see Jesus for who he is, the fact that he is in control, the fact that he reigns, the fact that he is sovereign, and the fact that he will rule forever and ever and swallow up all the kingdoms and all the rule of man, and he will reign in justice forever and make things right. That has great implications in our own lives. That has great implications for what we do right here and right now in our life over the next lifetime. Amen? So we see this picture in verse 16 of the 24 elders, these these. Uh, apostles or these honored men and, and, and there's a picture of them on their thrones around the throne of God and in this moment as Jesus reigns and takes his consummation of his kingdom happens what do they do they have the only response that's appropriate they fall from their thrones to their knees and they worship him this picture in Revelation the 24 elders worshiping him around the, around the throne these honored elders take the only position that's possible as we look in verse 17 Take a look at verse 17 with me in this picture. We see, saying, they're saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Think of this moment. Because we see this picture in other places. What does it usually say? He who is, who was, who is, and what? Who is to come. It doesn't say that here. Because he has come. In this moment, he's there, reigning and ruling. Who was and who is and who has begun to reign. Look at verse 17. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. This is the moment, the consummation of the kingdom of God where he begins his reign and his rule and he makes things right. The new heavens and the new earth. What a great day. What a great hope we have. But there's more to this. There's more to this moment when Jesus comes and consummates, when he comes again and consummates the kingdom of God. He's there, he's ruling, he's reigning. He's begun to reign, he's taken his power. The rule of, of, of men has been swallowed up in his rule. But looking at verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Let's take a look at that. Verse 18, the scene shifts 
from woes on earth to worship in heaven, right? And the songs that they sing are of the future consummation. They speak back through time to this suffering church, announcing the day when the world's kingdom has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, reversing the present when the nations and the rulers still rage against his anointed. So we see this picture of woes on earth, but now we see this picture in heaven of, these, of, of, of a future reality where he reigns and he rules. Look at Psalm 2, 1 and 3. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. There's a reality of of the way the nations have set themselves up against him. But when this day comes, he sets that straight. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 5 through, through, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Verse 18, we see this moment. Jesus comes back. The consummation happens. He rules, he reigns, he set things right. But there is a quick and decisive judgment. There's a moment when things are made right. And in that we see that every human being who's ever sucked oxygen on planet Earth will stand before God someday. And as I think about that, I, I recognize that my wife won't be next to me. My parents won't be next to me. There comes a day when I give an account before God. And there, as we see in the consummation of the kingdom of God, there is a separation. Those in Christ and those not in Christ. But look at John five twenty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Amen? Amen. Because of Jesus and what he's done, when God looks at me, he doesn't see my great sin. When God looks at me, he doesn't see all the screw-ups, all the times I did stupid things, all the moments in my life of selfishness, all the moments in my life of sin, all the moments of my life of abject self-concern, where I wanted to save myself, where I thought I could do it, where what was important to me was most important at the, at the disgrace of others or at the descent of others. Jesus doesn't see all those moments in my life. When God looks to me on that judgment day, when the consummation of his kingdom happens, he sees Jesus. Because if you're in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to you. He was the propitiation for our sin. He was the substitute. He did it so that I don't have to. He did it because I couldn't. And someday when God comes, this is going to be a great day for many and a not a great day for others. This is going to be a great day in the sense that he will rule and he will reign and the consummation of his kingdom will be a completed reality, but there will come a day when those in Christ, he sees them and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to them. Either your sin is nailed to the cross or it's nailed to you. But when Jesus and when God looks at you, he's either gonna see that or he's not. 
and the separation happens. And there's no more time at this moment. This is something that as you see in the whole of Scripture, Jesus talks about this happening very quickly in the sense that he says there's not moments to go to your house and gather your things. There's not moments to prepare. When this happens, when the consummation of the kingdom of God happens and he returns, it happens. Amen? What great hope in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Not anything you could have done, but because of what Jesus did. Amen? That is good, good news. You know, if, if we're relying completely on Christ, your sin has been judged in his death and resurrection. When he looks on you at the judgment day, he'll see Jesus. Amen? He continues on in verse 18 to talk about the reward of, of, of the people of God, the reward of the prophets and the saints. And we see, as you look to this, and as I've looked at what people believe this to mean, it's the people of God, those in Christ who receive this great reward that you see all throughout Scripture. Romans 2, verse 7 speaks to it. To those who are, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Amen? The people of God will be blessed in Christ at the consummation of the kingdom of God. And I love this part of verse 18. Both small and great. Isn't that great? Especially when you're five foot four. This is a great verse. <clears throat> Both small and great. Physical stature, wealth, position, socioeconomic status, how big your house is, how nice your car is, how great your job is, is all swallowed up in the kingdom of God. It is meaningless in the scope of the kingdom of God, when he comes, when the consummation of his kingdom happens, that has begun in Christ, will be consummated when he comes again. Small and great. It doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, if you're in Christ. You'll be forgiven. You'll be a part of the kingdom of God forever. And all of that status and position is all swallowed up in the kingdom and in the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's good news. The implications of that Think about that for a minute. Every day when you wake up in the morning, what are you fighting for? What are you contending for? What is your life as an equity being spent on? Is your life being spent on trying to attain status as mine? Is it being spent on attaining enough wealth so that someday Maybe you don't have to work anymore and you can go someplace warm and chase a white ball for the rest of your life. Is your life being spent on other people looking to you and saying, wow, you did a good job. You're really great at what you do. In the scope and in the context of, of looking at the kingdom of God and its consummation, I think it's a relevant question to get a little bit introspective and say, what am I doing every day? What am I spending my life on? What really matters about what I do every day? 
Because there is coming a day when he returns and all the stuff that we think matters doesn't mean garbage. All the stuff that we think is important, that we, we find so much value in, that we sweat so hard to attain is completely meaningless and is swallowed up in the kingdom of God and in the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ. This is a challenge. I'm preaching to myself as, mu- as much as I'm preaching to anybody else. This is a challenge. This has the potential as we look at the story of God and now as we come to the consummation of the kingdom of God, it's a challenge for us to look at our lives together and to say, all right, I believe the kingdom of God is coming. I hope in it to set all things right, to fix injustice, to make this whole thing finally fixed. Where's my hope? Where am I banking my life. If my life is banking on people liking me because I do good at my job, what happens when that goes away? If my life is banked on how big my bank account is, what happens when that goes away? We see that in the lives of people, don't we? Just go look up stuff on uh, 1929. They were jumping out of windows, right? When the stock market crashed, just think as, as far back to 93 or, or, or whatever it is where you've seen people who have banked their life on wealth, what happens when that goes away? Status, a relationship, other people approving and liking. It's, it's easy for us to get so caught up and all of that stuff. But doesn't this cause us a little bit to have, have, a, have an introspective perspective change? Just what am I looking at? What really matters about what I'm doing and what I care about every day? What do I wake up caring about? If you, like the man in Matthew 7 who built his house on the rock, are completely relying and banking your entire life on Jesus Christ, guess what? When the culmination of the kingdom of God happens, you're going to be there, amen? When the culmination of the kingdom of God happens, you are going to be a part of his family, forgiven, and a part of the kingdom of God and the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ, where all your tears, all your pain, all your disease, all your struggle, all your injustice, and all the stuff that you've seen happen or that has happened to you is gonna be wiped away, and we're gonna worship him in eternity forever, amen? That's a great day. That is our hope. That's our reality. That's what we should be banking and spending our lives on. Amen? Psalm 34, 9 says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Joshua 24, 14, Now therefore, Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Amen? Psalm 115.13 He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. Amen? In the scope and in the context of recognizing the judgment day, the day when he returns and the consummation of the kingdom of God happens, there should be an awe and a fear 
of who he is. Amen? And the only hope we have is that secure hope that we can rest assured, we can rely completely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Lastly, he talks about the destroyers of the earth. All the rulers of the earth and the nations are swallowed up in the return of Christ and his reigns. Listen, the implications of this are huge. I don't think I can exhaust them. But our hope is in Christ, amen? Our life should be fearfully relying on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. The only thing that remains is Christ and are we in him, amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reality of what you've done, your master plan, the story of God. What a great story. What a great truth. You have made a way where there was no way. You have began your kingdom in this place through Jesus Christ. And we are banking on and relying on and 100% throwing our lives on him. Recognizing and hoping for the day when you return and you will rule and reign forever and you will make all things right. We worship you, great God, because you're worthy. You deserve it. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.